0: mypatriotsupply.com
1: Hey everyone and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime where we get big mad over true crime I'm your host Heather Ashley and today's case is one out of Florida that winds up spanning across four different states. Small talk sucks so let's dive in 29-year-old Vincent Binder was the kind of guy who didn't know what free time was. Because to most, free time is taking a nap, playing basketball or some video games, or binging your favorite Netflix series. But to Vincent, free time was whatever he could do to help someone else. He went to high school in Jupiter, Florida, then graduated from the University of West Georgia, and in 2010 was in grad school at FSU in Tallahassee, Florida. The guy had no quit. When he wasn't in class or studying, he was coaching the FSU debate team and was also working as a teacher's assistant. This didn't leave a ton of time for socializing, but even still, WCTV reports that he managed to keep a small, tight-knit group of friends who he saw and talked to on a regular basis. They were the kind of friends they make TV shows about. They always knew what the other was doing, knew each other's schedules, and everything everyone had going on in their lives. On the evening of April 1st, 2010, Vincent walked less than a mile from his apartment to his friend Beth's place to have a little study group. According to a court document on caselaw.org, which I'll link in Vincent's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, Vincent, Beth, her husband, and a mutual friend Becca were there. Around midnight on the 2nd, they wrapped things up. Everyone at the apartment offered Vincent a ride home, but he liked to walk. He didn't even own a car. He preferred biking to class and everywhere else that he needed to go. On his way out of the apartment, the Globe Debate blog reports that he tapped Becca on the back and said, I'll see you on the flip side and walked out. Beth's apartment was on the corner of Airport and Epps Drive, and Vincent lived in the 900 block of Lipona Drive. The walk back to his place would have taken about 15 minutes down a couple of neighborhood roads. But the following morning, Beth tried to get a hold of Vincent and couldn't. According to WCTV, she tried calling and texting him throughout the day and over the next few days, but heard nothing. Their small group of friends started reaching out to everyone else they knew to see if any of them had seen or heard from Vincent, and they hadn't either. So they went down to his house and knocked on the door. Vincent didn't answer. They gave it a week knowing he's an adult and maybe, just maybe, he had something going on that they didn't know about. But by April 8th, when he hadn't shown up to any of his classes, he hadn't shown up for his debate team, and he hadn't shown up for his job as a teaching assistant, they knew something was wrong. That's when Beth decided that she was going to go to the Tallahassee Police Department and officially report Vincent missing. The police did not sleep on Vincent's disappearance. They were boots on the ground immediately. They went to his apartment and gained access only to find that nothing had been touched, including his only mode of transportation, his bike. His wallet wasn't there, his phone wasn't there, everything he had with him when he left Beth's apartment on the 2nd was still missing along with Vincent. It was as if he'd never made it the .8 miles back to his apartment. Tallahassee.com reports that the police say it's as if Vincent had completely gone off the grid. This was a guy who was in constant contact with his friends, classmates, coworkers, and students, but since April 2nd, there has been absolutely nothing. They plead with the media that if anyone, anyone at all, has seen Vincent since midnight on the 2nd to promptly and immediately contact the police. I put emphasis on the words promptly and immediately because those are the words specifically chosen by the department investigating his disappearance, and they're not words I see used often. Regardless of the fact that there's no evidence pointing to foul play at this point, there is a vibe here that police might know something that we don't, and that those words were chosen with a purpose." While his friends wait on any updates from police, Vincent's family flies in from New York. They conduct their own searches. They check the woods, ditches, any bodies of water nearby, big and small, and talk to everyone to see if maybe they'd seen him that night or any time since. They also put up flyers anywhere and everywhere they're allowed to, along with white bows, to make sure that even though life as usual continues going on for everyone else, that no one forgets that Vincent is still missing. At this point, everything seemed so helpless. His friends and family hadn't heard from him in over a week, and there were no signs of him anywhere. But the day after he's reported missing, on April 9th, something strange happens. According to Tallahassee.com, police investigating Vincent's disappearance are seen in Miami of all places. Miami is a seven-hour drive from Tallahassee. Police are pretty mum about why they're there, but on the same day, it's released that the police are concerned about what they call suspicious activities on Vincent's bank account. Was his card used in Miami? Everyone's ears perked up and waited for news, any kind of update about what police found in Miami, but the 10th passed, and the 11th, and the 12th, On the 13th, a prayer vigil is held on the FSU campus. A letter is sent out to students saying that the vigil is being held to celebrate Vincent and bring hope and positivity to a community that has been rocked by his disappearance. Vincent was someone who was dedicated to bringing good into the world and didn't have a selfish bone in his body. And the light that had been stolen from Tallahassee did not go unnoticed. Those looking for Vincent never skipped a beat, whether they were searching for him on foot, tying white bows around town, printing out and passing out flyers. They couldn't just sit around and wait for news. So they created a website. And with the website came a Twitter account. Knowing police had just been seen in Miami investigating his disappearance in Tallahassee, they didn't just want Tallahassee looking for him, they needed a bigger reach and the internet was the best way to do it. They also started a reward fund hoping that maybe if anyone knows what happened or where he might be, money might be of some kind of incentive to talk. The day after the vigil, after four days of no updates about that lead that led police to Miami, this case goes in a direction that no one could have predicted. A direction that nightmares are made of. The stories your parents warned you about as kids that never seemed that dangerous. Until now. Police announced that they found a stolen truck in Miami that might be linked to Vincent's disappearance. The truck was linked to three fugitives who escaped from a Louisiana jail two days prior to Vincent going missing, and they're in the custody of the U.S. freaking Marshals. In fact, they've been in custody since the 11th. As of yet, they've only been charged with escape, but this investigation is still very open and very active, and Vincent is still missing. Initial information about what was found inside the truck was scarce, but they did note that there was a bloody knife, receipts, and other evidence. According to the Miami Herald, the fugitives were all inmates at a jail in Marksville, Louisiana. And on March 30th, less than 48 hours prior to Vincent going missing, 22-year-old Quentin Truehill, 22-year-old Kentrell Johnson, and 39-year-old Peter Hughes put a shank up to a guard's neck and managed to escape. All three men had a history of violent crimes. True Hill was serving a 30-year sentence for manslaughter and armed robbery. Johnson was in for armed robbery and a parole violation, and Hughes was serving a four-year sentence for unlawful entry into an inhabited dwelling. Tracking dogs chased them out of the jail but lost them in the woods, and the three men were able to steal a truck from a nearby house, and they just started driving towards Miami. The fugitives drove the stolen truck through Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and Florida, and the police think it took them about five days. That's a 1,003 mile trip. Not that I counted. I definitely counted. This should have taken 15 hours if they drove straight through, but they very clearly didn't. So what were they doing for those five days and where does Vincent come into all this? Well, The band of fugitives had a leak. As soon as they were taken into custody, Truehill and Hughes refused to talk. Before they could even begin being questioned, they requested an attorney, but that is not what happened with 22-year-old Johnson. WCTV reports that Johnson started talking. He tells police that Vincent approached the three of them at a gas station and asked if he could buy some weed. Now, his friends tell Tallahassee.com that Vincent isn't that stupid, that this is just a ridiculous statement coming from a guy who just escaped from jail. And I'm inclined to believe them, not just because they know Vincent better than I do, but because no matter how you slice it, there aren't any gas stations between Beth's apartment and his The Sun Sentinel reports that Johnson then goes on to tell police that the three of them agreed to sell him some weed and drove him to an ATM. So now we're supposed to believe that Vincent saw you guys at this imaginary gas station in the middle of Narnia, happened to ask three strangers for some weed, knowing he had no cash on him, and agreed to hop into their stranger truck to go to an ATM so he could pull some out. Obviously, no one was buying that bullshit, so Johnson caved. He admitted that they forced Vincent into their truck with the intent to rob him. Johnson continues, and the outlet reports that they drove Vincent to an ATM at a gas station in Madison County, but that his card wouldn't work. For geographical reference, Madison County is 55 miles away. They didn't just kidnap Vincent and take him to the nearest ATM. They kidnapped him and kept him in the car as they continued their trek to Miami. Vincent was in the vehicle with his abductors for more than an hour, wondering what they were going to do to him, what they wanted from him, before they ever tried to take anything from him. At the gas station, Johnson says that Vincent wanted to get out, but they wouldn't let him. With the card not working at the ATM, they try it at the gas pump and it works. And therein lies the first breadcrumb police got as to what might have happened to Vincent and where he might be. At this point, Johnson's memory gets selectively hazy. He says that he was high and passed out, but also offers up information that Truhill and Hughes walked Vincent into the woods and came back out without him. Kind of hard to remember that when you're asleep. In one last ominous statement, the Sun Sentinel reports that Johnson said, and I quote, they didn't have to kill him that way, and stunned officers. Vincent was missing. What do you mean they didn't have to kill him that way? Johnson had no idea that no one had found Vincent, and with that, he clammed up and asked for an attorney. With all that information, the charges against Truhill, Hughes, and Johnson were upped. On April 17th, instead of facing escape charges, they were also charged with kidnapping to facilitate a felony, but they still needed to find Vincent. Tallahassee.com reports that the search for Vincent now spans more than 500 miles of highway and mapped out that's from Tallahassee to Miami. Another prayer vigil is held for Vincent on the 18th, but this time it's a little more somber. Knowing that he was kidnapped by three violent fugitives and taken on a long car ride to an ATM only to recover the stolen truck with a bloody knife and no Vincent in sight, it becomes clear that this might be more than a missing person, but the community is still holding out hope. Tallahassee.com reports that they're still working on increasing the reward for information that leads to Vincent, but says that if their worst scenario becomes their reality, they'd like to turn the reward money into a scholarship fund at FSU. Vincent loved it there. He loved his classmates and he loved his students. Another agonizing week passes after the second vigil, but on April 28th, everything changes. On April 28, 2010, authorities locate the body of a deceased and decomposing male in a field by the 12 Mile Swamp Conservation in St. John's, Florida, nearly 200 miles from where Vincent was kidnapped and 148 miles from that gas station in Madison County. It takes two days to confirm, but by the 30th, they know. The body in the field was in fact the body of 29-year-old student, teacher, and coach Vincent Binder. Vincent had spent 3 hours in the car with prison escapees who were trying to use his bank card to fund their trip, and just after passing through Jackson, they got off the highway, went down a long dark desolate road, pulled over, took him out of the car, led him into the woods, killed him, and left him there. Vincent had been beaten and stabbed to death. And with that, News 4 Jackson reports that the medical examiner officially deemed Vincent's death a homicide. Johnson's own words of they didn't have to kill him like that are more haunting now than ever. With the evidence mounting in the investigation and the medical examiner's conclusion, Quentin Truhill, Kentrell Johnson, and Peter Hughes were charged with first-degree murder. After Vincent's body was found, the updates about this case were pretty scarce. The only real update until December of 2012, yes, two and a half years later, was that all men had pled not guilty, which means they were all facing the death penalty. It was argued that all men be tried together since the case against the three of them was so intertwined, but in the end, they were all tried separately. In the spring of 2014, the trials for these three heinous criminals began and a crime spree spanning from Louisiana to Florida began to unravel. Court documents on caselaw.org revealed the almost unbelievable details that we tend to think only movies are made out of. On March 30th, the three fugitives got together with a plan. They were going to escape and they knew exactly how they were going to do it. One of them got a shank and held the holding cell officer hostage. Once they made it out of there, they then attacked a booking officer with said shank, giving them the opportunity to run out of the jail and make their escape. We know the dogs lost them in the woods and that they were able to steal a truck at a nearby house, but that truck had tools in it along with knives. They knew they'd need some money to get to Florida, and they didn't even make it out of Louisiana before they found their first victim. Leanne Williams was getting out of her car in a shopping center parking lot in Broussard, Louisiana, 80 miles from where they just escaped from, when the fugitives backed their truck up into a spot near her, got out, grabbed her purse, and hauled ass. They used Leanne's bank card until it was shut down for suspected fraud, and the fugitives knew they would need another. The fugitives then drove five hours through the night, making it out of Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama, and on the afternoon of April 1st, the men drove into an apartment complex parking lot in Pensacola, Florida. In that parking lot, they saw a woman named Brenda Brown, whom the Sun Sentinel reports was clearing out an empty apartment. One of the men asked her for some water, so she took them into the apartment and filled up a glass, but when she turned around, True Hill had a knife pointed at her. They asked her for everything she had, which wasn't much, and then proceeded to use electrical tape to tape her mouth, bind her hands behind her back, and take her to a back bedroom of the empty apartment where they brutally beat her until she knew she had to play dead. When they thought she was dead, they left and she called the police. She was rushed to the hospital where she had five of her fingers amputated, a skull fracture, and two lacerations to her head. After their robbery and attack in Pensacola, they drove three hours east towards Miami, stopping in Tallahassee. You might think this is where Vincent comes in, but not yet. Their first victim in Tallahassee was Mario Rios. He was at his friend's apartment complex at around 10.30 p.m. when Johnson walked up to him and asked him if the mall was still open. Something about this whole thing seemed weird. I mean, how often do random men walk up to you in an apartment complex parking lot at 10.30 p.m. asking you if a building full of stores is still open? He started backing away from Johnson when True Hill jumped out of nowhere, holding a knife and grabbed Mario by the back of the shirt, twisting it to try and get a better grip on him. True Hill told him to hand over everything he had, but instead, Mario broke free and ran as fast as he could to his friend's apartment and called the police. But the fugitives were gone before police got there. And while True Hill Johnson and Hughes had fled that apartment complex, they didn't go far because just 30 minutes later, they found another victim. At 11 p.m., a young woman named Chris Pavlish and her friend were walking back to her car when the stolen truck of fugitives pulled up right in front of them and stopped, blocking them from walking any further. This time, the fugitives asked for directions. When Chris tried giving the directions to them, True Hill then demanded she give them her purse and started swinging a machete at her. A fucking machete. True Hill tried to grab her, but her and her friend were able to break free and ran for their lives. But she dropped her purse during the attack, and True Hill made sure to grab it before they fled the scene. The clock struck midnight and the first became the second, and at 12.15 a.m. and 12.21 a.m., just 15 minutes after Vincent left Beth's apartment on the corner of Epps and Airport Drive, Vincent's bank card was used at the Halftime Keg store in Tallahassee. The problem here is that the CCTV footage shows that it's not Vincent who's using the card. It's True Hill. And Halftime Keg is about a mile south of Vincent's apartment. They had to have come in contact with him on his way home and then driven him a mile past where he lived to use his card. Vincent's apartment is a 15-minute walk from Beth's, and within 15 minutes of him leaving, his card was being used at this liquor store a mile away from his home. He likely would have been almost home at the point that they came into contact with him. With Vincent in the vehicle, they used his bank card in Tallahassee, Madison, and Jacksonville. After using his card in Jacksonville, they drove another 30 minutes or so down the highway and pulled off that desolate road, walked him out into the woods, and killed him. Vincent was brutally murdered, with two different murder weapons, and he fought for his life. He had four stab wounds to his back caused by a knife. blunt force trauma to the left side of his head that was so severe that it broke through his skull, and Vincent also sustained chopping injuries caused by a machete. The medical examiner found roughly 10 chopping wounds to the back of Vincent's head, which left a 4-inch hole in his skull. In Vincent's attempt to fight for his life, he broke his radius and ulna, the two large bones that make up your lower arm. He also fractured multiple ribs and had chopping injuries to his hand, likely caused from trying to stop the machete. "'Vincent's hat was found 25 feet away from his body "'and straight through the brim of it was a cut "'that would have been going straight towards his face.'" After killing Vincent, the fugitives got back into the stolen truck, continued towards Miami, and continued using Vincent's bank card in Fort Pierce, Daytona Beach, Opa-Locka, in Miami until his card was frozen due to suspicious activity. The suspicious activity was when three men tried to use his ID to pull out $1,300 at a bank in Opelika. The teller noticed that the ID given didn't match the description of any of the occupants in the car. She alerted security, but because the transaction was taking so long, the men in the car got scared and drove off, but not before security got the license plate of the vehicle that tried to use Vincent's ID. The vehicle was not the stolen truck. It was a car belonging to a woman named Shirley Marcus. They tracked her down and went to her house and spoke to her and two men who were also there, but at the time, police didn't know anything about the whole fugitive situation, so they didn't think twice about these two men who we now know gave fake names to police. When we move on to the recovery of the stolen truck, the only reason it was located and recovered near Miami Beach is because one of the fugitives lost the keys while they were living their fugitive life. When police got access to the truck, they found personal items belonging to Vincent, Leanne, and Chris, all previous victims of their robberies along the way. They also found a receipt for a budget inn down the road. Law enforcement went to the budget inn and found True Hill. While they were there, Shirley Marcus pulls into the parking lot with none other than Hughes in her car. A few blocks down the road, they also found Johnson. All three men are now tied to the stolen vehicle used in all of those robberies and the vehicle used to try and get $1,300 out of Vincent's bank account. They also realized that the two men they'd spoken to at Shirley Marcus's house were two of the fugitives. Authorities had been so close. They just had no idea, no one did, of the gravity of what was truly going on here. The police processed the hotel room and found jeans that belonged to True Hill that wound up having both Brenda and Vincent's blood on them, meaning that whoever was wearing these pants took part in both of their attacks. In other DNA news, remember Mario, the guy from the apartment complex parking lot? He had given the shirt he was wearing to police because that man had grabbed him so forcefully. They thought maybe it would have his DNA on it. And it did. It was a match for Truehill. Through Johnson's interviews with police and testimony, along with a trail of banking information and CCTV footage to confirm who was using these stolen credit cards, all three men stood no chance against a jury. And in mid-2014, Truehill was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to death. After Hill, Johnson was also found guilty of first-degree murder and kidnapping, and he, too, was sentenced to death. Hughes took a different path. Unlike his counterparts, he decided to take a plea in exchange for a life sentence and pled guilty to first-degree murder and kidnapping. These men are the nightmares our parents warned us about. They're the reason we're afraid of the dark. They're the reason we're told not to talk to strangers or walk alone at night. But because of the justice system, Quentin Truehill, Kentrell Johnson, and Peter Hughes will never take a single breath of free air as long as they all shall live." For all maps and photos pertaining to this case, check out Vincent's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley and join me there tonight at 9pm Eastern where you go live with me and we talk about the absolute insanity that is this case. If you like your podcast ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash big mad true crime or for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you need more episodes in your life for just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode on the first Monday of every month. All your episodes are ad-free and you'll also receive a forever discount code for all big mad true crime merch. And of course, anytime you sign up, you get instant access to all previous bonus episodes. I'll be bringing you a brand new case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out.